When it comes to the topic of Christ's return, many Christians either get confused or they become engrossed in speculation and date setting. Sadly, Christ's second coming has little effect on the way they live today as his disciples. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find thousands of more gospel-centered, nations-minded resources at our website, Radical. In this message from David Platt on Matthew chapter 24, we are urged to live in light of the second coming by trusting in Christ now, by persevering in his power, and by expectantly longing for his return. As we wait for that glorious day, the return of King Jesus should compel us to proclaim the good news of his kingdom to the ends of the earth. This message is part one of Return of the King. If you have his word, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to Matthew chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, let me invite you to find somebody around you, maybe who does, you can look on with Matthew chapter 24 and pull out those notes that are in the worship guide you received, hopefully when you came in. Matthew chapter 24, a very... Interesting, in many ways, challenging passage of Scripture. After graduating college at the University of Georgia, getting married, and moving to New Orleans, I remember the first time I went downtown into that city. Jackson Square, located in the heart of the French Quarter, was littered with tables filled with fortune tellers and tarot card readers, sitting and speaking with tourists. Men and women would sit down and pay these street vendors to find out what their future looked like. It didn't take long for some friends of mine and me to decide that we wanted to get in on the action. So one Saturday, we took a table and some chairs, some candles for ambiance, We set up shop right next to the voodoo queen of New Orleans. We put our table down there next to her. We set a sign in front of our table that said, we'll tell your future for free. We sat down. We waited for our first customer. People people started walking up to us. They said, you'll tell us our future for free? We said, of course. And it's guaranteed. So they would sit down. We were tempted to ask them to put their palms out. We thought that would be taking it too far, and so we didn't. But we would ask them a few questions. They would establish the fact that they had sin in their lives. And we would look at them and we would say, your future looks very bad as a result of sin. But we would say, your future can change based on who Christ is and what Christ has done for you. Now, it didn't take long for us to figure out that's not exactly what they were looking for. They were wanting to find out details about their future now. Were they going to get married? Were they going to stay married? Would they have children? What kind of job would they have? Would they be able to keep their job? Would they be successful? Would they be rich? Would they be getting sick anytime in the near future? Would they experience tragedy anytime in the near future? All of these little details that they were concerned about in their lives to the point where they had no interest in talking about the eternal destiny of their lives. They were missing 
the whole point of the future. And the reason I share that is because we're coming to a text this, this evening where Jesus talks about so one of the most controversial conversations he has with his disciples in all the New Testament, one of the most controversial chapters in all of the New Testament, where Jesus foretells the future and talks about the end times. And all kinds of people have taken this text and tried to figure out all kinds of little details about when or where or how this or that is going to happen. The words we're about to read have led some people to predict exact dates when Jesus is going to come back and the world is going to end. I remember when I was younger hearing about a book called 88 Reasons Why Christ is Returning in 1988. What, if you, what do you do if you're celebrating New Year's Day with that guy on 1989? And what do you say? A happy New Year just doesn't seem appropriate to that guy right there. And then last year, Harold Camping predicted the world would end on Saturday, May 21st, 2011. That, of course, did not happen. So he changed his prediction to October 21st, 2011. He had made a slight miscalculation, he said. On October 22nd, I think he decided to hang it up. So... There's lunatics out there. I mean, not in the best way possible out there, but also Bible-believing Christians and scholars who debate what this or that means in a text like Matthew 24. Is this premillennialism or postmillennialism or amillennialism? Is it pre-trib, mid-trib or post-trib or rapture or no rapture? And there's a place for all that because those are issues that are important and the Bible talks about them. We're going to get to them probably when we get to the book of Revelation later this year. And then I think next year we're going to do Secret Church on the end of the world. But if we're not careful in all of our fascination with details about this or that, we will miss what is most important. Because amidst all the little questions that may arise in Matthew chapter 24, there are large questions that we must answer in every single one of our lives in this room. So, Regardless of details about when or where or how this or that is going to happen in the future, tonight, I want to ask every single person in this room, are you ready for whatever may happen in your life this week or this month or this year or the next 10 years? And most important, are you absolutely certain where your life will be 10 billion years from now? Now that is a very important question for all of us to answer. So my goal tonight is not to tell you your future. It's not to answer every single question you may have about the end times based on Matthew chapter 24. Instead, my goal in the next few minutes is to show you the big picture of what Jesus said about the future of your life and the future of this world that we live in. And I want to show you what you can bank your life on and what you cannot bank your life on. I want to show you what matters in this world and I want to show you what does not matter in this world. And as bold as it may sound tonight, I want to prepare you for whatever your future may hold this week or this month or this year, the next 10 years. And as weird as it may sound, I want to show you how Jesus' words tonight prepare you for the next 10 billion plus years. So we're going to read this text. Actually, the first, first 35 verses of Matthew 24 
This is part one of two. We'll pick up with the second part, starting in verse 36 and end of chapter 25 next week. But based on this controversial, oftentimes very confusing text, I want to give you three clear words of encouragement for your life and your future in this world. So we'll start in Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. I'll read aloud. You follow along. We're going to go through the whole thing, and we're going to step back and and think about what this means. Matthew 24, verse 1 says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So, if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender, puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, 
you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Okay, wars and earthquakes, lightning and vultures, trumpets and fig trees, tribulations, abominations, desolations, and generations, oh my. What does all of this mean? Amidst all the controversy, confusion, three clear exhortations for your life and my life in this world. Number one, trust in the authority of Christ. Trust in the authority of Christ. So this is where I want us to start by taking a big picture look at what we just read. And I want to help you understand this text, how it's arranged, because there are two main prophecies that Jesus is addressing here, two main events that he is foretelling, that he is talking about. And it's important to distinguish when he's talking about what. So, and admittedly, not every single biblical scholar would agree here, but the majority see a clear distinction between prophecy of two different events, first of which is a prophecy concerning the destruction of Jerusalem. And if in your notes you want to put some verses out here, put verses 15 through 21. Prophecy concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, verses 15 through 21. So here's the scene. Starting up at the beginning of the chapter, verse 2, Jesus foretold that the temple and Jerusalem would be destroyed. So right after he said that, he and his disciples walk across the valley and up onto the Mount of Olives, from which you can look back and see the city of Jerusalem and the temple in the middle of it. And his disciples come to him and they say, when is this going to happen? And Jesus begins to talk about when this is going to happen. He starts talking about things that are signs and not signs. Then you get to verse 15. Look at it again with me. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea, i.e. in Jerusalem, Jerusalem's the capital city of Judea, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Then you get down to verse 21, he says, there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And this is clearly a reference to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple specifically in the middle of it. When he talks about the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, that's an intentional reference. We don't have time to turn back there. But four different times in the book of Daniel, we see this language of abomination and desolation used. Daniel 8, 13, Daniel 9, 27, Daniel eleven thirty one, and Daniel 12, 11. Four times where the prophet Daniel, centuries before, foretold a time when a foreign ruler would come into the temple and profane it. Now, most Jewish people linked that prophecy with something that happened around 168 BC, a couple hundred years, almost a couple hundred years before this, when a ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes came into the temple. He erected a pagan altar in the middle of the temple, sacrificed a pig on it, and defiled the house of God. But here it's as if Jesus is saying, that's only a foretaste of what's going to happen when Jerusalem is destroyed. And sure enough, about 40 years after Jesus spoke these words, around 70 AD, Roman armies began surrounding the city of Jerusalem to overtake it. And when they would overtake the city, the Roman army would destroy the temple, totally obliterate it, and set up sacrifices to false gods 
and declare Titus, the Roman emperor, the one who is supreme. And Daniel 12, verse 1, uses the same phrase we see here used in verse 21. Daniel 12, 1 says, There shall be a time of trouble such as never been, until, never been seen until that time. And the destruction of Jerusalem absolutely was a horrifying, ghastly time in Jewish history. The Jewish historian Josephus talks about the savagery and slaughter disease and famine from about 680, 68 to about AD 70 that plagued the Jewish people during those years. He talks about how parents were reduced to cannibalism with their own children during those years. Many were taken into slavery. Literally millions died. And all of that took place 40 years after Jesus said these words. So here he's telling his disciples, they're looking back at the city of Jerusalem, and he's saying, when this happens, flee. When the Roman army comes to attack the city and destroy the temple, don't even go home and get your clothes. If you're out in the field, leave immediately. You hear his heart, how difficult it will be for pregnant women during that time who are nursing infants and needing to flee, men and women who strictly observe the Sabbath and they think we can't go anywhere or do anything right now or in the winter, not because it'll be cold, but because the rains would cause rivers to swell and it would be harder to flee the Roman army coming after them. So that's the first prophecy here in this chapter. And it's key. Jerusalem will be destroyed. The temple will be desecrated and obliterated. Not one stone will be left upon another. So that's first prophecy here. Now, the second prophecy comes in verses 29 through 31. And this is a prophecy concerning the return of Jesus. So, second prophecy, prophecy concerning the return of Jesus, verses 29 to 31. When Jesus said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So we know this is not talking about just the destruction of Jerusalem. This is talking about all creation coming to a close here. Lights going out. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And Jesus will come, return finally and fully to assert his reign and his rule over all the world as the sovereign son of man who deserves the praise of all peoples. Now, this is where people debate exactly what, what will happen here, what will happen right after this, but the reality is he's coming back. That's the second prophecy there. There's all kinds of questions that, that come in, but the, the, what we do know for sure is that Jesus is talking about how he's going to return. So that's the two things we need to understand in this text, two prophecies, one concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, one concerning the return of Jesus. And then, with all these other verses in between those, before and after and in between those verses, we've got commentary that helps us understand these two prophecies. Now, this is where you've got a variety of people who debate how these other verses around those two sections relate to these two prophecies. And basically, there's two predominant schools of thought for how these two prophecies relate to each other. One school of thought among biblical scholars basically sees the first prophecy as a foreshadowing of the second prophecy. So the destruction of Jerusalem is like a foretaste of what's going to happen at the return of Jesus. Almost like two progressive mountain peaks. And you're looking at one 
And you see that, and once you get to the top of that one, then you can see clearer what happens in the next mountain peak. I think about uh, my time in Kenya last week. We were outside of Nairobi. I, I mentioned we were in a place where Kenyan marathon runners train, this place called Ingong Hills, which is basically this beautiful mountain outside the city. It has six progressive hills that just go up to the top. And, and so one day we decided we were going we to go up, uh, on not all the way to the top, but up one of those hills, because they're pretty good-sized hills, and we're going to go up there, we're going to spend time in prayer. You can look back and you see the whole city of Nairobi on one side. You look on the other side, you see the whole Great Rift Valley. It's just beautiful. And so the plan was for the team to ride up in a van up there and... That was the plan, and that would have been the wise option to take. But there was one particular Kenyan brother who was going to run up the hill, and so I said, well, I, I'll run with this guy, and it's only a hill. I mean, who can't take a hill? So I didn't have my running shoes on. That was really my problem. I was just as in shape as this Kenyan guy, but I didn't have running shoes. I was wearing these, these boots that about, about uh, two minutes in felt like they weighed about 20 pounds apiece. And and so I start jogging with this guy, and it was miserable. <laughs> it was absolutely miserable. Like that, the top, the peak of that hill could not get there soon enough. It looked closer than it actually was. And so we finally get to the top of that hill, and I am pouring. I'm dripping sweat. I'm gasping for breath. High altitude lungs just feel like I don't, I've lost one or something. And I look at this guy next to me. He's still running in place. He's got like a drop of sweat, maybe kind of dreaming. So anyway, that's, that's kind of, and then you get to the top of one and you can see the next one better. So that's, that's how one group of scholars kind of view this text. The other group basically sees this text. You got basically verses four through 28 leading up to the prophecy of the return of Jesus, as all talking about things that will happen, tribulation and distress and trouble that will happen before Jesus comes back. And the prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem is just one example of tribulation and trouble and distress that will happen before Jesus comes back. And so, to be perfectly honest, I kind of go back and forth between which school of thought to go with. But in the end, it really, really doesn't matter because... The picture is, we got two prophecies that are clear. One is the destruction of Jerusalem. The other is the return of Jesus. And everything else is couched around those two prophecies. Now, that's understanding this text, applying this text. For just a moment, I want to pause. And I want to, I want to remind you why these two prophecies from the first century are hugely important for you and I in this room in the 21st century. Even this prophecy concerning the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD. Why is that important for us? Because these prophecies remind us, mark this down. This is a mammoth reality for you and I to remember in this room. The things of this world are passing. They're passing. This is simple but it is hugely significant. You think about these disciples, you put yourself in their shoes, country boys from Galilee who've come into the big city of Jerusalem and they are stunned by its splendor, especially the splendor of this temple. And they had reason to be. It was a massive, awe-inspiring, breathtaking edifice built with these stones. Historians tell us some of these stones were 40 feet long. 
12 feet high, 12 feet deep. Some of them weighed over 200,000 pounds apiece. Just imagine trying to move one of those without the advanced construction equipment we have today. We, we're, we're smart enough not to try to move those even with advanced construction equipment. No dump trucks though, no semi-trailers, no cranes, and yet they stacked these massive stones after massive stone, one on top of another, all leading to this roof that was just bathed in a sea of golden glory, white marble on the top of the temple that would virtually blind you when you saw, saw it in the reflection of the sun. So the disciples, in the beginning of this chapter, look at the temple and they point it out to Jesus as if to say, what an amazing building. And Jesus shocks them when he looks back at them and he says, you see all these stones, do you? Not one of them is going to be left standing soon. The things of this world, even the best, most incredible, seemingly most stable things in this world are passing. Things that you and I marvel at. Things that you and I treasure. Things that you and I build our lives on. They're passing. The key verse in this whole passage we just read is verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away. Do you hear that? This world, with all of its splendor, all of the majesty of this world, with trees and mountains and valleys and seas and oceans and rivers, all the riches of this world, it's all passing. Heaven and earth will pass away. But, mammoth statement, my words will not pass away. The things of this world are passing, but the truth of the word of Christ is permanent. It's huge. Regardless of how somebody might interpret this detail or that detail in this text, it is clear. Jesus accurately foretold the destruction of Jerusalem 40 years before it happened. These stones would pass away. The city would pass away. People in the city would pass away. But his words would remain. This is not some fortune teller in the fringe quarter, some tarot card reader in downtown New Orleans. This is the Lord of history. And he speaks with authority about the future. He knows the future. He ordains the future. He is the one who brings it to pass. Heaven and earth. Think about it. Just you look outside. Like It's going to pass away. It's going to pass away, but his word will not pass away. So don't build your life on the things of this world. Don't pour your life into things that are passing. Don't build your life on the riches of this world. Don't build your life on the pleasures, plaudits, plans, possessions of this world. Don't build your life on these things. You'll just waste your life on these things because they're all going to burn up in the end. Things that we think matter, that don't matter. Without question, it is one of the fiercest most deceptive tactics of the adversary to get you and I to think that the things of this world will last when they won't last. And to pour our life in the things of this world that are fading away. So don't build your life on that which is passing. Build your life on that which is permanent. That's why I'm saying trust in the authority of Christ. So Jesus spoke about the destruction of Jerusalem and it happened. And he spoke about his return and it will happen. Mark it down. It will happen. So are you going to be ready? 
on that day, which we're going to talk about in just a second, could be any day, could be tonight. So are you going to be ready? When he comes back, will you have banked your life on that which is passing or that which is permanent? Right now in your life, are you pouring yourself into that which is passing or that which is permanent? That which lasts. I want to urge you, based on the authority of Christ, spend your life, build your life on what will last forever. Namely, his word. So, how do you do that? And how do you get ready for the day when Jesus comes back? Well, I'm glad you asked. That leads to the second clear exhortation from Jesus' words here. Second, persevere in the power of Christ. So trust in the authority of Christ and persevere in the power of Christ. So, now I hope you can see the significance of everything else Jesus is saying in this passage based around these two prophecies. Because he's preparing his disciples in that day, in that time, for Jerusalem's destruction. But at the same, in the same words, he's preparing his disciples in all times, in all days, for his return. So these words of warning about signs and preparing, knowing what to expect, apply to all disciples of all times. There's specific applications, certainly, to what's going on in the first century, but they go beyond that. All of us face different historical challenges. Not as unique as destruction of Jerusalem here, but the, the encouragement that Jesus gives here is absolutely applicable to us. Persevere. Now, I've mentioned a lot of people will take this text and try to piece it together in order to conclude, okay, based on what he said, when this happens and that happens in the world, this is happening or that happening in current events, then clearly that means Jesus is going to come back. But I don't think that's the point of this text. The point of this text is not for us to read this passage and then try to set a date for something when, when, when something's going to happen, when Jesus is going to come back. Because Jesus himself said in verse 36, which we'll start with next week, that concerning that day or hour when he comes back, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Jesus says, I don't even know the day or hour, which is a pretty remarkable statement when you think about it. We'll dive into that next week. But the point is that this text should not lead us to date setting. The point is for you and I to walk away from this text knowing what is going to happen before Jesus comes back, knowing what was clear to these disciples in the first century when they heard this and should be clear to us. We need to know, follow this in your notes, followers of Jesus, then and now, until Jesus comes back, followers of Jesus will face deception. Now we're starting to fill in the gaps here of all that we see surrounding these two prophecies. Verse 4, Jesus says, many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Same thing in verses 22 through 25. People will say, look, here's the Christ, but don't believe them. He says, false Christs and false prophets will arise, perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And Jesus is saying, don't believe them. Don't be led astray. Don't be deceived. And it's not just Jim Jones or David Koresh or other clearly false teachers. It's people all over the place today who are promoting pictures and versions of Jesus that do not square with Scripture. Don't be deceived by them. Followers of Jesus will face deception. Followers of Jesus will face tribulation. That's a clear theme all over this passage. Whether it's in first century Jerusalem or the 21st century world, Jesus is saying life will not be easy. Wars, rumors of wars, nations rising against nations, famines, earthquakes. 
These things were familiar to them in the first century, and they're familiar to us in the 21st century, aren't they? Wars and rumors of wars. Today, across the Middle East, with Israel and Iran and North Korea, nations rising against nations. Famine in parts of Africa. Over the last year, where hundreds of thousands of men and women and children have starved and are starving. It's one of the dangerous things about living in the context and the culture in which we live because we can go on with life and hardly even realize what has been happening over the last year or two in parts of Central and East and Western Africa. When we were with Eric Hansen and his wife Amanda, members of our faith family, a couple of weeks ago, and Eric periodically goes up to the border of Somaliland to a refugee camp where hundreds of thousands of people have fled, having seen their family members and friends die of starvation, have fled just in search of food and water. Famines, earthquakes. In just recent years, have we not seen cyclone in Myanmar, earthquake in China, flooding in Pakistan, tsunami in Southeast Asia, each of which just within a matter of minutes wiped thousands of people off the face of the earth. We're not immune to tribulation in this world. No one is. Expect these things, Jesus says. Not not in such a way that you say, okay, well, this happened in Myanmar. This happened in China. This is happening right now in Israel and Iran and North Korea. So clearly Jesus is about to come back. Well, maybe he is. But the point here is not to lead us to date setting. The point here is to remind us how to live what to expect in this fallen world in the time before Jesus comes back. And so he says, look at what he says, see that you are not alarmed, verse 6, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. What an astounding statement. See that you are not alarmed? Famine everywhere, natural disasters rampant, rumors of nuclear war in our day. Don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Don't let your life go up and down based on political trends or potential disasters. These things are not to alarm you. Now, that's not a heartless statement from Jesus. That's not saying, it's no big deal. Just don't worry about it. Obviously, there's heart behind all of this. Is we see him aching for pregnant women and the people of Jerusalem as this destruction comes. But what he is saying is very clear. This is all a part of what Romans 8 talks about. When it talks about the groaning of creation, longing for redemption from the creator. Don't be alarmed when you see these things. Christians are not saved from trials. Christians are saved through trials. And so Jesus is saying, trust in me in the middle of tribulation. Don't be alarmed. Even when everything seems out of control, Jesus is saying, I am in control. These things, horrible things, are to be expected. Pain and hurt and suffering and tribulation in this world. It will not be easy for you. Wars will happen. Famine will happen. Earthquakes will come. Cancer will come. Tumors will come. Tragedy will come, but don't be alarmed. Persevere through tribulation. It will come your way in this world before I come back. Don't be 
surprise, don't be alarmed, don't think that it's all out of control. I'm in control. Followers of Jesus will face deception, tribulation. Followers of Jesus will face temptation. Verse 10, Jesus talks about how many will fall away and betray one another. Many will be led astray. Their love will grow cold. Jesus says to these disciples, and I would say to to brothers and sisters, even members of this faith family, before Jesus comes back, you will be tempted to turn away from Christ and to trust in yourself. And there will be some among us who will fall away from the faith. Some among us who we thought were believers, who were brothers and sisters, who will show that they were not of us. Some who we thought were strong in their faith, who will wander from their faith, and their love will grow cold. Don't be surprised by that. Expect that. And he says, when you see it, persevere in that. Persevere in that. Because you will face temptation to do the same. Followers of Jesus will face temptation, and followers of Jesus will face persecution. Verse 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation, and they will put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Because you are a Christian, because you bear the name of Christ, you will experience suffering. You will experience opposition in this world. So expect that. Don't be surprised by that. Don't run from that. You don't pursue persecution. Don't pursue opposition. But know that when you follow Christ, persecution and opposition will come. Persevere in that. That's the whole point of what Jesus is saying. He says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Don't give up. By the power I give you, don't give up. That's what I mean by persevere in the power of Christ. It is not easy to follow Jesus faithfully in this world. Which is why, isn't this why Jesus has promised us that we quote to one another at the end of every worship gathering is so key to remind ourselves of to look at each other. We've gathered together for worship. We've encouraged one another in the word. And we prepare to go out in the world and we look at each other and we say, Jesus has told us, I am with you always to the end of the what? To the end of the age. As we go out, he is with us, his power with us, his presence with us to walk through the different things that you and I will walk through this week and next week and this month and this year and the days to come. He is with us. So we persevere in his power. And as we do, what are we doing as we go? Verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Oh, I love this. And we've talked about verse 14 before. George Ladd, New Testament theologian, called this verse the most important single verse in the word of God for the people of God today. The most important single verse in the word of God for the people of God today. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. And it's so fascinating because we've just gone through a list of things that Jesus said are not signs of the end. They're just birth pains, Jesus said. They're just preparation. They're leading to the end, but they're not the end. But then he gets to verse 14 and he says, now this is when the end will come. When the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations. Which sets the stage for the command that is to come in Matthew 28, 19, which we also quote to one another at the end of this worship gathering. Go and make disciples of all the nations. This is why we go. It's why we go into Birmingham this week. It's why we work in Clarkston, Metro Atlanta, where there's all kinds of unreached people groups represented there. It's why Eric and Amanda Hansen are doing what they're doing, and JD and JJ and Chris and Lee and Brian and Bethany, multitudes of midtermers 
Short-term trips going out all over the place from this body. We're going. Why? Because we want the gospel of the kingdom to be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. That's why we talk about that all the time. You know why? Because this is what matters. Now, this is what matters. Seeing men and women. I just got an email today from one of our midtermers who's serving in East Asia. And she was talking about how one of the things that was tough with her leaving is she had been she led some people to Christ here and had been a part of disciple-making relationships with them and she missed seeing them baptized. And, and she said the one, one day when one of them was being baptized here, she was kind of sad because, because she was missing out on that. And she said it just happened to be on that day that one of the people she was sharing with in East Asia came to faith in Christ. And she sent pictures of baptizing this, this new sister in Christ in a bathtub. This, this is why we go. This is why we talk about this all the time. This is why we're always going to talk about this all the time until the end comes. We want the gospel of the kingdom proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the people groups in the world. So let's, let's give our life to what matters. Let's see our jobs, okay? Not just as means to make money and provide for our families. Yes, but also as platforms for the spread of the gospel of the kingdom in Birmingham, Alabama. Let's see the resources that God has given us in incredibly wealthy Birmingham, Alabama. Let's see the resources God has given us as avenues that God has given us for the spread of the gospel of the kingdom throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Not just so we can sit back and get more stuff. This is what matters. Let's build our lives. Let's build this church on that. Now, knowing that as we do that, it won't be easy. So follow this. Persecution inevitably follows kingdom proclamation. So you give your life to proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in your workplace. You give your life to proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom throughout the world. It will get harder for you, not easier. You want to live a nice, comfortable, carefree, safe Christian life? Don't talk about the gospel of the kingdom. You just stay quiet, pray, read the Bible, keep it to yourself. You can coast through this thing. But it will be costly It will be challenging when you give your life and we give our lives to proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, but it will be worth it. You know why? Because gospel proclamation will ultimately result in kingdom consummation. Because Jesus is going to return and consummate his kingdom when this mission has been accomplished. And so, and it will be accomplished there's coming a day when every nation, every ethne, every group of people has been reached with this gospel. So we give our lives to this. Remember, we, we, well, how do we know when this is going to happen? How do we know when all the nations have been reached with the gospel of the kingdom? Well, this is where, and I've shared these words before, you, before with you, but from George Ladd, I just can't improve on him. He said, God alone knows the definition of terms here. I cannot precisely define who all the nations are, but I do not need to know. I know only one thing. Christ has not yet returned. Therefore, the task is not yet done. When it is done, Christ will come. Our responsibility is not to insist on defining the terms. Our responsibility is to complete the task. So long as Christ does not return, our work is undone. So let us get busy and complete our mission. Ah, don't we want to be part of the accomplishment of this mission. Oh, what if in the sovereign design of God, you and I had the privilege of being a part of the accomplishment of this mission in our day? 
That's worth living for. It's worth giving everything for. That's, it's worth dying for. So I trust in the authority of Christ. I persevere in the power of Christ. And as we do, third, we long for the coming of Christ. We long for the coming. So, so you see this? You see how the reality, you look at those things we just talked about, deception, tribulation, temptation, persecution, all those things just create anticipation and expectation, don't they? The more we live in this world, the more we long for Christ to come back to this world. And if if this text makes anything clear, it makes that clear. It will be no secret when one day the angels of heaven let out a trumpet blast and every eye will behold in the sky the Son of Man on the clouds. Now this will be very different from his first coming. Came the first time to a small remote, obscure town just outside Jerusalem. Hardly anyone noticed or knew, save a few shepherds and a few farm animals. Came the first time lying in a manger. Ladies and gentlemen, he will come the second time riding on the clouds. Just like Daniel prophesied centuries before, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man with dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. This picture of the clouds, It's not just a reference to Daniel. It's not just kind of a visual image. All throughout the Old Testament, we see God's glory revealed in a cloud. Exodus chapter 14, when when God brings his people out of slavery in Egypt, he leads them with a pillar of what by day? The cloud, his presence, his glory. You get to the end of Exodus and you see God's Shekinah glory dwelling among his people in a cloud that covers the tabernacle. You get to Psalm chapter 104, verse 3. It says, God makes the clouds his chariot. Isaiah 19, 1 describes the Lord riding, riding on a swift cloud. And the picture here is the glorious Son of God coming. Now, follow this. He came the first time in humility to provide salvation. There was death on the cross for the sins of men and women throughout history. He came the first time in humility to provide salvation, but he will come the second time in glory to execute judgment. So Matthew chapter 24, verse 30 says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why is that? Why will they mourn when they see the second coming of Christ? Will all the tribes of the earth mourn, lament, weep, wail? Because this is a day of judgment. And all who are not ready for that day, everyone who has refused to turn from their sin and themselves and to trust in Christ as Lord and Savior and King will come face to face on that day with the Holy One whom they have rejected. And that will be a horrible day for such men and women. So let me pause at this point and ask the simple question. What if this happened today? Tonight. What if, what if tonight these rain clouds 
outside opened up. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, came back tonight into this world. Would you be ready? Let that question just zero in on your life and your mind and your heart. Would you be ready? Friend, have you come to the point in your life where you have turned aside from your sin and yourself and trusted in Jesus as the Lord Savior of your sins, King over your life. Do you know, do you know that your eternity is sealed with Christ in such a way that the thought of Jesus' return tonight brings nothing but joy to your soul at this moment? When I say, what if it happened tonight? Does your heart just leap inside of you? Does your heart coil back and say, I don't know. And if your heart does leap, I want to invite you now, even in this very moment, this instant, in your mind and in your heart to say, yes. Yes, I turn aside from my sin myself. Yes, I trust in Jesus. He's died on the cross for my sins. He's risen from the grave in victory over sins. He is the Lord and Savior and King of universe, and I trust in him. I urge you to do that, to do that now. Like he could come back before the sermon's over. Do not tarry, do not wait. Do not continue to try to stand on that which is sinking beneath you. Trust in Christ. And then even even Christian who would say, yes, okay, yes, I've turned from sin. I've trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord and King. Are you ready? Or are you toying with sin in your life right now? Are you holding on to things in your hands and your heart that you would be ashamed to be holding on to if Jesus were to come back at this moment? Are you flirting with disobedience? Are you walking in disobedience? Are you building your life on stuff that doesn't matter? And if so, I want to urge you to let go of those things. Confess sin, confess. Confess your need for his mercy so that your heart, let's live with hearts that are ready at any moment for the return of Christ. This is how the Christian life is intended to be lived, with a longing for the coming of Christ, not a recoiling back thinking, okay, I'm going to get some things right then. No, come before him honestly and receive his mercy. Surrender to him. He came the first time in humility to provide salvation. He will come the second time in glory to execute judgment. So what do we do until he comes then? Whether it's tonight or tomorrow or 10 years from now or a thousand years from now, what do we do? Christians confidently watch. That's the lesson of the fig tree in verses 32 and 33. Jesus says, just like when you see leaves in a fig tree, 
You know that summer is near. So when you see these kinds of things, no, my return is near. These are birth pains. Birth is coming. With every passing day, we're getting closer. So we watch. In a very real sense, brothers and sisters, we keep our eyes set on the sky, knowing that it could be today, could be tomorrow. Who knows when? But we know that when it come, when he comes, his timing will confound our wisdom. When the son returns, we will see that the father's timing makes perfect sense. We will not look, look and say, oh, I just still don't understand why not 1988. Like, it would make sense. His timing will confound our wisdom. So we watch with confidence in the control of God. Christians confidently watch and Christians patiently wait in verse 34, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this is probably the most controversial verse in the whole chapter. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And some people have taken that verse and said, well, well, Jesus is saying all these things, this generation that he's speaking to, these disciples, they won't pass away until all these things take place. He didn't come back, so, so that was not true. But clearly the picture here is not Jesus saying that he's going to return before these disciples pass away which brings all kinds of discussion about what generation means, what pass away means, what all these things mean. But the picture seems to be that all these things he talked about, tribulation, deception, temptation, persecution, they would come upon these disciples. And some of those in that generation would see the destruction of Jerusalem as a foretaste of the return of Jesus. But in the midst of it all, from generation to generation, we will face deception, temptation, tribulation, persecution. And while we do, we patiently wait, knowing two things, two things. One, we know that Jesus is coming back. And two, we know that we are closer today than we were yesterday. And that's really good news. So we wait, knowing that when he comes, his return will exceed our expectations. His return will exceed our expectations. So do you ever get your hopes up for something and then when it actually comes, it was not all that you thought it would be? Not so with the second coming of Christ. Don't lower your expectations just in case. Even the words we have here are mere efforts at using human language to describe divine glory in this scene and then what happens in the days that will unfold after that? This is what I love about the way C.S. Lewis ends the Chronicles of Narnia. The last chapter of the last book, last paragraph. He writes, As Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. So Christians confidently watch and we patiently wait. And while we do, we urgently work. So waiting does not mean laziness. This is what the Thessalonian church struggled with 
They were so, Thessalonians were so caught up in the second coming that they just started quitting their jobs and doing nothing because they thought Jesus was going to come back. And Paul writes in a letter and says, get a job, guys. Like, do something. So we work. We fight deception. We persevere through tribulation. We walk through cancer. We walk through tumors. We walk through trials. We walk through tragedy. We fight temptation. We endure persecution as we proclaim the gospel, the good news of the kingdom throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. We give our resources, we give our lives, and we do it all with one prayer on our lips. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we do that, we know that his church, our lives, will one day accomplish his mission and he will return for his people. Are you unsure of how our country will look after Election Day on November 3rd? Well, you're not alone. What if there's a way for Christians to participate in an election with authentic love for Jesus, countercultural unity in the church, and a clean and clear conscience before God about how they vote? Well, David Platt is asking those critical questions and more in his brand new book, Before You Vote. In this new book, David takes you on a journey that is driven by biblical truth, not political talking points. As a pastor of a church in our nation's capital, he offers a timely, nonpartisan, practically helpful, and scripturally saturated message. And that is, exercise your vote with humble conviction in a way that magnifies Christ, maintains unity in the church, and aims for the good of all people. Before You Vote is available right now, and Radical with David Platt podcast listeners can get their copy at www.beforeyouvotebook.com forward slash podcast. That's beforeyouvotebook.com forward slash podcast. Well, that's all for today's episode. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. And until next time, join us at radical.net.